and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. We've been talking together in worship about all the places where God lives. In the very same way that the place that you live becomes a part of you. God's character gets shaped by the places where God lives. Now we know from week one that God is from the wilderness. God is an outsider God. God's love is formed in relationship with people who themselves are outsiders. From last week, we know that God lived for a long time in a tent, a carefully built, yet very humble and very temporary tent. That was where God abided with us as we journeyed. God lived with us and and stood with us and stayed with us as we grew up from slavery into freedom, from being dependent beings to being interdependent beings in the tent. This week we're going to talk about God's grandest home of all the temple. And to tell the complicated story of that particular building, I want to take you back to a moment in 2 Samuel. In the passage that I'm about to read, the days of the tent are over. The newly installed king, David, is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem with the prophet Nathan close by, and David has a thought. Listen for the word of God. When King David was settled in his house, and the Lord had given David rest, the king said to the prophet Nathan, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. That very same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. The Lord said, Go and tell my servant, David, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel from Egypt, but I've been moving around in a tent. Wherever I have moved among the people, did I ever once say, why have you not built me a house made of cedar? Say to my servant David, I took you from the pasture to be prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you went, and I will make for you a great name, and I will plant my people so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And as for you, David, I will make you into a house. From 2 Samuel, that's the word of God for the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. This is all that remains of the temple in Jerusalem, that area down below where you see the people gathered. Have any of you been there? 
Raise your hand. Oh, more than a few. Beautiful. There is a wall there that you can still go. People can still go and touch. They place prayers into the cracks of that wall. That wall was part of the second temple complex, which by tradition was built by Ezra and Nehemiah after the return from the exile sometime around 500 BCE. We know that that temple, that second temple, was fancied up a bit by King Herod. Remember the Gospel of Matthew in the time of King Herod? That same King Herod uh, expanded the temple greatly so that this is probably what it looked like during the time of Jesus. That temple was obliterated in 70 CE by the Romans in response to a Jewish rebellion. That destruction echoed the fate of the first temple, which stood in the very same place until it was destroyed by the Babylonians in their conquest of Jerusalem in 587 BCE, the beginning of the exile. According to tradition, this first temple was built by King Solomon in the 900s BCE. Now, there's not much archaeological evidence that tells us anything about this building. We don't know what it looked like, but the description of this first temple in 1 Kings tells us that it was something grand. We read in 1 Kings that Solomon was super rich. You can read how many servants Solomon had and how much delicious food Solomon ate and how many horses he owned and how many women he owned. We also read that Solomon and his people were sacrificing in high places, which means that they were worshiping many gods. The reason that scripture tells us is because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Okay, maybe. But Solomon talks to God and decides to change that. Solomon will build the house for God that his father David had imagined. So Solomon's workers go and they cut down cedar trees and bring them in from Lebanon and cypress trees. And they cut massive stones and they build this great structure. And it was filled with carvings of vegetables and flowers. And there were uh, floors made of olive wood and there were pillars and there were bronze lampstands and the Ark of the Covenant, which held those tablets upon which God had inscribed the Ten Commandments. They were in an inner room. And that inner room was covered with gold. First Kings says that on the day the temple was dedicated, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests couldn't even stand to minister there for the glory of the Lord so filled that house. That sounds like a good housewarming for God, doesn't it? God had a new home, the God of the wilderness, the God who had led us from slavery into freedom and had upheld us through all of the ups and the downs until we finally reached this place of solidity, of security. Now God had a grand new home among us. Solomon speaks to God at the dedication of the temple, and he says, God, be with us. Be with us just as you were with our ancestors. Don't leave us or abandon us, God, but 
Incline our hearts to you so that we will walk in all your ways and keep your commandments. It's a very earnest petition. And then God responds to Solomon at that same dedication ceremony. And God says, I have heard your prayer and your plea. And I have consecrated this house that you have built. And as for you, if you walk before me with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel. But, there's always a but, right? If you turn aside from following me and do not keep my commandments, the Lord says, then I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them. This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by it will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. That, friends, is what we call foreshadowing, right? The grand house of God will be destroyed. It will be, not once, but twice. And both are brutal and awful and humbling events. What I want you to hear in this is the idea that the solidity of God's house is conditional upon the king and the people's faithfulness. But their faithfulness to what? Their faithfulness to the way of life that was established during those 40 years of desert journeying. A way of life that is one of humility and compassion for each other and faith and love, and generosity, and justice. Be faithful to God's way, and this house will stand forever. Now what I'm about to say will make some of you mad. I hate glorious houses of worship. Now, hate's a strong word, so I'm going to explain myself. I've had the blessing of being able to travel to some beautiful parts of this world, and I have seen many cathedrals. I'm kind of drawn to them like a moth is drawn to the light. That fascination that I have with these spaces was, was shaped, I think, the very first time I set foot in one. It was in this place, in Germany, in Cologne, I was 11 years old. I still remember the experience of walking into the cathedral. Maybe you do too. It's like what you feel when you're standing on a mountaintop or at the edge of the Grand Canyon, standing underneath that great vaulted ceiling in that vast dark womb of a space light pouring in from overhead, and not just any light, brilliant light filtering through handmade panes of colored glass. 
each one of them arranged to tell part of God's great story. I love the feeling of being in these holy spaces. They light up your imagination. Your spirit shifts in the direction of awe. You begin to consider all in the world that is sublime, all that is excellent. You can't believe that human beings are capable of doing something like this, and you wonder if you're at all inclined towards spiritual things. You begin to wonder about a God who inspires this kind of grandeur. So what's not to like? Well, after a while, you begin to understand that no building can ever be separated from the culture and the way of life in community in which that building is made. As you spend time thinking about the circumstances around the creation of almost every great sacred space, those circumstances almost always become troubling. Who builds these buildings? Artists, yes, but thousands of laborers working in dangerous, often brutal conditions. They're debtors, prisoners of war, foreigners, or just plain poor. Slavery most often makes these buildings. And Solomon, borrowing a page out of Pharaoh's own book, enslaves 30,000 men to build his temple. And the money, so much money, that money's got to come from somewhere. Where does it come from? from the spoils of war, from taxes that crush the people, from selling indulgences. The money to build these temples comes from folks who are poor and at the expense of the integrity of the religion itself. And then there's the power. What kind of power builds a cathedral or a temple, it's almost always a solitary man. Rarely a woman, right? A solitary man, a king, a bishop. They build the temple to demonstrate their own power, and only unaccountable power can force so many men to work so hard for so little. Only unaccountable power gathers and spends so much money. This all came home to me a few years back when we were in Italy and in a region called Perugia, there's a beautiful little town called Assisi. This was gonna be the highlight of my trip because I've always been fascinated by this guy who came from this town called Assisi. This guy named Francis who seemed to love animals and nature, who 
exhibited this very humble way of life. This guy who thought solidarity with outsiders was the way to glorify God. So, of course, there's a massive basilica in Assisi. It was begun in 1228. Only two years after Francis died, they canonized him and made him a saint, and church leaders wanted to capitalize on Francis's immense popularity. They needed a pilgrimage site to make money. So they built this house. And millions of people walk around this extraordinary building. But I kept thinking as I was walking around, they built this to honor Francis? In the basement of the basilica, there are some display cases that have objects from Francis's life. He was a real person, right? So he had stuff, not a lot. This, they think, is the robe that he wore. And as I stood there in front of it, I kept asking the same question that you're probably asking now. Which one glorifies God? The basilica or the robe? There aren't any simple answers. But every time I walk into a sacred space now, I ask myself, whose hands built this? Whose money was used to build this? What kind of power did it take to raise these walls? I ask these questions in every cathedral that I walk into and in every church, especially the churches here in the American South that were directly or indirectly built with money from the enslavement of black Americans. What kind of home is it that glorifies God? There is a deep ambivalence about glorious spaces that's woven into Scripture itself. Remember what I read earlier from 2 Samuel, where David, who has been picked by God from the pastures, supported by God to defeat the enemy Goliath, ascended to the throne by God's own care. And David is sitting there in Jerusalem on his throne in his house, and he says, wait a minute. I got this nice house. And there's God's ark in a tent. I ought to build a grand house for God too. But God's reply could not be more pointed. God says, wherever I have moved with the people, did I ever say, why have you not built me a house made of cedar? We think we need these great buildings for God. We think that their size and their beauty and their grandeur will convey God's glory. 
It seems like God is less excited about buildings than we are. When we lived in the desert together, God gave us a vision for human life. That vision is based on humility and compassion and faith and love and generosity and justice. That vision isn't glorified by any building, but by what you make of your life and by what we make of our life together. A human community in right relationship. That is the glory of God. That is the building that is never destroyed. That is where God is at home. Let the church say, Amen.